All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to visitors and long-term members. What's that? Good morning. Good morning. I love some enthusiasm. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and we're going to continue with our series titled Incomparable. I was just informed this week that I'm pronouncing that word wrong, uh, to which I say I'm an American and too bad for you. Uh, somebody said you have to say incomparable, but that sounds crazy to me. So I'm going to say incomparable, and every time I say incomparable, you just hear incomparable. But just so we're clear, we're talking about the same word not able to be compared with. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day today, great day to be alive. It's a great day to know you and to be known by you. Father, today we have so many things we could pray for. Uh, Father, for our church members, those that are here, those that are away, those that are traveling, those that are not well. And Father, for the visitors. And Father, just for the condition of the world, wow, as we were talking about in Sabbath school today, the world does look like a battlefield, and probably that's because it is a battlefield. So please, Father, now in this little oasis of time that we have called church, help us to focus our eyes. You've given us beautiful music this morning to direct our attention to you. Father, you've taught us through the children's story about all these wild and crazy creatures that direct us to you and our attention to you as creator. In our offerings, we have been directed to you as provider and the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Father, now in in the sermon, we direct our attention to you as the, the giver and the inspirer of the written word and the sender of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, as we continue now, our second series, Incomparable, as we take an in-depth look at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, may you open our minds to the importance of the text in the second part of Matthew chapter 1 and all of Matthew chapter 2. Father, may we see this passage, familiar passage to some of us, uh, with new eyes, and may we hear it with new ears, and may you melt our heart and then remake it as a malleable, soft, godly, and spiritual heart is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Beautiful. All right, turn your attention with me to the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to be spending uh, most of our time for the rest of the year. We do have a couple little say-so Sabbaths that we'll uh, sneak in there, but we've got 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've got more or less 28 Sabbaths from here to the end of 2016. Our last sermon was the first in the series, incomparable, titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Not Like. And we noted several things in that sermon, and just quickly by way of review, we noted that Matthew's gospel is characterized by many things, and we noted a few of them. The first is this idea that God is with His people. We leave the Old Testament with a sense of separation. Israel would have uh, at times felt a sense of abandonment. The dream that was God's vision for Israel had largely failed. And you get this sense of separation. That sense of separation is further magnified by that period between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, a period that spans some 400 years in which there is no prophetic or canonical voice a period that is sometimes referred to as the silent period. And there could have been this ambient sense among Israel that that God had left us, that God was not with us. And so when we get to this first book of the New Testament, the herald of the, the coming of Jesus, as Matthew writes it as a first century believer and a first century disciple, he wants us to know 
that Jesus' name will be Emmanuel, God with us. We then traversed all the way through 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, down to chapter 28, and Jesus' final words to his disciples were, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so that was a major point last week, that the gospel of Matthew is framed by God's withness of his people, both in chapter 1, the first chapter, and in chapter 28, the last chapter. We also noted that the Gospel of Matthew, similarly to the Gospel of Luke, is characterized by Jesus' teaching in parables, which is where we get the title of our series, Incomparable, which if you look at the word carefully, you'll see the word parable right in the word, incomparable. Maybe I should pronounce it that way, the Australian way. But I did ask an Australian this week, and I said, how do you pronounce that word? And she said, incomparable. So I think you're divided on your perspective on how that should be pronounced. So right in the word, incomparable, is the word parable. And Jesus repeatedly said, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Some 11 times it saturates the gospel of Matthew, these parables, in which Jesus is drawing our attention to what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we noted last week, in saying what the kingdom is like, by extension, he was saying what the kingdom of heaven is not like. And what it's not like is a bigger, grander, more expansive version of Rome. It's a totally different kind of kingdom. It can be likened to a seed. It can be likened to a net. It can be likened to yeast. A very unusual kind of a kingdom. Uh, One other quick thing that we'll note about last week, and that is that there is this emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew, it's going to come out again and again and again, of this, this Gentile orientation. There's an emphasis on an ongoing mission to the Gentiles. And we saw that right in the opening little bit there of of the genealogy of Matthew, where four women are mentioned, not in keeping with the ancient practice of recording genealogies, which was almost always exclusively male. We find four women that are mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and the commonality that they all have is not just their gender. The primary commonality that they have is that they were all Gentile peoples. And Matthew, and we're going to see this again today, is directing our attention. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew would have been written many years after the events that are being described here. Uh, Not earlier than about A.D. 60 and not later than about A.D. 80. So this is now living very much in the Gentile mission of the church. And Matthew is looking back over the life of Jesus and he's writing with a particular emphasis. He was writing to say, look, even in the days of Jesus, the seeds of a Gentile mission were being planted and watered by the Holy Spirit. Our attention is drawn to that in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see it's drawn again and again in Matthew chapter 2 and beyond. And so that leads us up to our series here. That was our brief review, and our sermon today is titled, The New Exodus. The New Exodus. And why don't you come with me to Matthew chapter 1. Last week we got up through... We talked about the genealogies mostly, and now we find ourselves in verse 17, where as we've noted before in this church, Matthew conveniently and very, in a very organized fashion compartmentalizes the Old Testament into three chapters. We had seven chapters in our Ablazing Grace series. Matthew says, here's the Old Testament in three chapters, and we'll see it in verse 17. Verse 17 says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon to the Christ are 14 generations. And so Matthew, in a very symmetrical and very organized way, divides the Old Testament up into these three basic chapters. 
the call of Abraham, which of course was the birth of the Jewish nation, down to David, the king, right? The great king in Israel. Then from the height of the monarchical period under David, right, comes the next chapter, which leads to the demise of this grand and glorious vision that was going to be Israel, and that is the Babylonian captivity of Judah and also Israel to Assyria. And then from the captivity, Matthew says, until the Christ is the third and final major chapter of the Old Testament, and that is uh, leading up to anticipation of Messiah, which of course is exactly the point of Matthew's whole gospel. So you have these three chapters, each of which are comprised um, of 14 generations. Now, scholars are more or less of the opinion that Matthew is purposefully and stylistically arranging the Old Testament there to fit his larger point. And that is that there was a 14, there was a 14, and there was a 14, which any Jewish reader would immediately recognize is six sevens. A seven, a seven, followed by a seven, a seven, followed by another seven and a seven, which brings us to the verge of the seventh seven. When we find ourselves on the cusp of the seventh seven with the announcement of the birth of Jesus, which is the very next verses that are coming, if you take a look at verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was like this. This is how the birth of Jesus came. But before Matthew ever gets to the birth of Jesus and to the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, he says there was 14, there was 14, there was 14, a.k.a. There was a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven. And here it comes. We're right on the verge, as any first century Jewish reader would have recognized, and as any modern Seventh-day Adventist reader should recognize, uh, we're on the verge of the seventh seven. What does the seventh seventh mean? Jesus arrives at the seventh seven, which announces at least two things. Number one, it announces rest. Of course, the seventh is the Sabbath. It's the, it's the day that God rested, that, that cycle of sevens. And it also anticipates a jubilee because the jubilee, of course, was a series of seven Sabbaths. The jubilee year was the 50th year. And so there's this announcement. We've talked about this before in this church, so I'm going over it briefly here. There's this sense that a rest is coming. So it's not without significance that in Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters away, Jesus will say, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I wonder if you could finish this. And I will give you rest. Jesus himself embodies the principles of Sabbath and he then offers as a gift the beauty of a Sabbath rest, the true Sabbath rest, not just the Sabbath rest that we are here experiencing in terms of a rest from our physical labor, but the true Sabbath rest, which is a resting in God totally as creator and totally as redeemer. But even beyond the Sabbath, seven sevens anticipates a jubilee. And of course, the Jubilee was, the, was that great period in the Jewish economy in which the land went back to its ancestral owners, the debts were neutralized, all debts were forgiven, and the slaves were set free. So there's this announcement of freedom, there's this announcement of renewal. That's what the Jubilee was all about. If, if, if you're a, a PC user, I feel sorry for you, but... If you're a PC user, and I don't know if this still works on PCs, but back in the day when I used to own a PC, which is light years ago, uh, eons ago since I've seen the light, uh, I'm getting off on that. Forgive me for that. But there was a Control-Alt-Delete command. How many people know what I'm talking about when I say Control-Alt-Delete? Okay, so you've all experienced the pain of Control-Alt-Delete. It's like, like got to restart. The Jubilee was a Control-Alt-Delete. It was like, okay, let's try that again. Okay, let's try that again. 
okay, let's have a fresh start. And so when Matthew announces that Messiah is coming, that Yeshua is coming, that Emmanuel is coming, it's right on the verge of Sabbath, and it's right on the verge of Jubilee. Restoration is coming, captivity is ending, and something really new, really special is about to happen. Now, with that in mind, let's get into the birth. And I want to try, I might fail... That could happen. I'm going to try to introduce you to the birth of Jesus through eyes that you might not have thought about it before. Because often the way that we tell the story of the birth of Jesus is in the context of um, this sort of placid, peaceful, silent night. And there's the manger and everybody's moving and very, you know, it's just this, it's not that way. Okay, that's not the way Matthew tells the story. Now, Matthew uniquely tells the story from Joseph's perspective. Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective. There's no mention of a manger or of animals or of that peaceful sort of ambient scene that we sometimes communicate the birth of Jesus in around December. There's no, there's no hint of that in the Gospel of Matthew, right? If we get any of that, if that's fair, that comes out of Luke's Gospel. That's not found in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is injected with massive political hostility, upheaval. Matthew's gospel launches with political dynamite. And you're going to see that here in just a moment. I want you to notice verse 18. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. Colon. This sounds like he's going to set the record straight, which is what I believe is what's happening. It's not just merely to tell the story of the birth of Jesus as, as if to say, hey, this is really important, though it was important and it was miraculous. I believe there's a deeper subtext here, and the subtext is that there was in the time of Matthew already a circulation about the, how shall we say, untoward and dubious nature, perhaps, of Jesus' birth that maybe it was not as, as clean and nice and holy and pure as was suggested. And Matthew is here to set the record straight. And so he says, the birth of Jesus happened like this. And then four times he makes an unambiguous reference to Mary's virginity. Now we're going to talk about virginity in just a moment, but for reasons that might seem strange to you, but hopefully won't as we read the text. Let's read the rest of verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. Setting the record straight. This is, my main, this is what I'm maintaining today. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. That's the first mention. Before they came together. When he means come together here, he doesn't mean socially. He means sexually. Before they came together in Congress, sexual Congress, he says, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse 20. It says, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Second mention. Second mention. Jump down to verse 21. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the Lord by the prophets, saying, quoting now from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall be with child. And, they will, and she will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And then that's the third reference. Now the fourth and final, verse 25. And Joseph did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. And that's the end of chapter 1. Then we're into chapter 2. So you get this really strong sense, or at least I get this really strong sense here, that the point is not to elevate virginity over and above 
the, uh, sexual union. It's, it's not this, this virtuizing of virginity. And I want to talk about that in just a second. That's not his point. His point is that there, I believe there was already in circulation certain accusations and insinuations about the dubious nature of Jesus' birth. Yet just who was his father anyway? We get a hint of this in the Gospel of John. Take a look at this. John chapter 8, verse 47. Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. He was speaking of Satan. Speaking to the religious leaders, you do the deeds of your father. And look at their response. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. That appears to be exactly what it looks like. A not-so-subtle reference to the dubious and um, uh, scandalous nature of Jesus' birth. That maybe his birth was not so miraculous after all. Maybe it wasn't even Joseph's baby. Maybe it was somebody else's baby, and the whole thing is a grand cover-up. Hey, we weren't born of fornication. So when Matthew and his gospel begins, again, it's not this silent night. It's not that story. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus happened. This was before they came together. The, the, the angel came and said, What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Incidentally, that text, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is not used by anybody else as a messianic prophecy until the time of Matthew. In other, in other words, Matthew is the first person to use this text in any messianic capacity. So it's not like there was this Jewish expectation that a child would be born to a virgin. Matthew goes back seemingly looking for a text that will buttress his point, and that is that it was a miraculous birth. It was a virgin birth. And then finally there in the last verse of chapter 1, it says that, that all of this happened before he knew her. Now, what's the point here, David? What are you driving at? Well, I believe the point is not the virtue of virginity, but the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. And the Christian church, you may or may not be aware, has been saddled with a, what's the word I'm looking for here? The Christian church has been saddled with a certain timidity about the sexual enterprise for much of its history. And this idea that, that sex is dirty and sex is not something we talk about and, and sex is... is <laughs> where I am very much of the perspective, the biblical perspective, that the number one place to be learning about human sexuality is from Scripture and in church. I think to myself all the time, where would I want my two teenage boys to learn about sex? From the internet or from a gospel-informed biblical perspective at church? Well, that's a no-brainer. You see, we today in, in the modern world, and even more so a decade or a century ago, we have certain scruples and fastidiousness about talking about sexuality in, in public spaces and even in private spaces. Some of you, your parents never spoke to you about these things. Some of you have never spoken to your children about these things, which in this world is borderline insanity. But that aside, Scripture bears no such fastidiousness or scruples about the sexual enterprise. It just, it just speaks about it as if it's a, it's a function of humanity. It's a reproductive function. It's like eating. It's, it's just something that people do. Or we're... No, 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 no. Matthew here is not... He is not idolizing or in some way revering virginity as some sort of, ah, this is a holy, beautiful, wonderful thing. In fact, this is about something far more important, and that is that Jesus' birth was, in fact, miraculous. This, this 
consistent emphasis on Mary's virginity has, I believe, contributed to the uh, timidity and the scruples with which the Christian church meets the sexual question, which in 2016 and 17 is a giant question. And it's a, giant, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a giant situation in which we find ourselves because of the massive sexualization of the world, of culture, of society, etc. Now, with this in mind, I'm going to tread ever so delicately into ground that Scripture just charges right into. And here I want to bring this idea to you. Virginity is not God's ideal. Sexual intimacy is. There is no elevation of the virtue of virginity in Scripture as such. The reason that Mary's virginity is emphasized is simply to emphasize the non-dubious and miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. But go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you will find that God repeatedly says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But in Genesis 1 and 2, there is one thing that is identified as not good. Does anybody want to tell me what that was? There was one thing in Genesis 1 and 2 that was not good. It is not good that... That mankind should be alone. That's because man, woman and man, male and female, are social, sexual creatures. So just from Genesis 1 and 2, this picture emerges in which God does not have this modern or or yesterday's fastidiousness about sexual matters. God is very matter-of-fact about it. The two become one flesh, which is an unambiguous reference to the sexual union that is experienced between a man and a woman. So God's ideal is not some pious, monastic, priestly virginity. God's ideal is sexual intimacy between two people that love each other deeply and dearly. Now, this this idolization of virginity has actually created not only a, a culture of timidity and shame around the sexual question in certain uh, churches, the Catholic Church would probably be the easiest one to identify, this, this virtuization, virtualization or virtuization, whatever the word is there, this virtualizing of not virtual but virtue, making it virtuous, has, has, is on display in that they don't let their priests marry. Oh, no, we don't want our priests, the holy men, participating in that lowly, carnal, beastly act of sexuality. And nuns, those who want to go to that higher realm to dedicate their whole lives to God and to disassociate themselves from the low and the base and the carnal. No, 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 no. This is an invention of the church. This is an an invention of mankind. This is not God's intention. God's intention was not virginity as some high and holy sexual ideal. God's intention was that sexual intimacy between two committed partners is his ideal. And we have unfortunately misread, I believe, the gospel story and the story of the virgin birth, not simply as Matthew setting the record straight, but as somehow idolizing uh, the importance or the holiness of virginity. Notice what I put here. Virginity is virtuous in this sense, in this sense that it anticipates God's ideal of a loving, lifelong, and monogamous marital union. So if it has any virtue, it's only in the sense that somebody is keeping himself or keeping herself for God's ideal, which is sexual intimacy. As the story of the birth of Jesus unfolds, this becomes clearer and clearer. But it's interesting how this incorrect understanding of the baseness of sex and the whole 
worldliness of virginity has actually clouded not only Christian thinking and culture, it's clouded some Christians' doctrine. And one of these ideas is what is called the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. How many have heard of that before? The perpetual virginity of Mary. So it's not just that, that there was a virgin birth, that she was conceived non that Jesus was conceived non-sexually, but that she was not, even in the giving of birth, even in Jesus passing through her reproductive system, that didn't take away her virginity, and she never had sex after that. As if that's the ideal. So I've quoted this just here from Wikipedia just to catch you guys up if you've not heard of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The doctrine is a part of the teaching of Catholicism and Anglo-Catholics, as well as Eastern and Oriental Orthodoxy. In other words, hundreds of millions of Christians believe this. Okay? So it's a massive, I believe, blight on, on, biblical, on biblical truth, as expressed in their liturgies in which they repeatedly refer to Mary as ever-virgin ever virgin. Well, what this effectively does is it sacralizes virginity and it normalizes or even uh, uh, makes as base the human sexual experience, which in fact was God's ideal all along. He had said in Genesis, it's not good that man should be alone. No, 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 no. The, The two will come together and they will be one flesh. And in that holy, connective, beautiful joining, sexual, social, intimate, personal, emotional, psychological joining, life is created. What a high, beautiful, holy, and awesome purpose sex serves. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it's been degraded and demoralized, but here's something I want to say about prostitution, pornography, and all of that. Pornography cannot steal the beauty of sex. Sex is given by God. It is beautiful as created from the hand of God. All it can do is try and pervert what God made beautiful and awesome and glorious. But the church would make a giant mistake to shy away from God's good gift just because it's been perverted by Satan's overtures, attempted to be perverted by Satan's overtures. In fact, human sexuality and the beauty of heterosexual monogamous connection, that should be embraced and celebrated by the Christian church. Can somebody say amen to that? There is no shame in sexual pleasure. There is no shame in sexual intimacy. We should be teaching our children that sex is amazing and awesome. It's the connection not of two bodies, but of two people. There's a big difference. It's not just the connection of two bodies bumping into one another. It's the connection of two people with fears and hopes and dreams and passions and and a coming together in an intimate, wonderful way that is to be shared only with one other person. I urge you to be speaking to your children about these things. And if you don't, I'll do it for you on Sabbath on occasion. The narrative emphatically affirms Mary and Joseph's honor and God's ideal for human sexual relations. I want to speak to my teenagers about this. God's ideal for human sexuality is that you preserve yourself, you keep yourself for that one other person. That's God's ideal for you, and I want to give you just a word of advice here. Your life will be far better, far, far better, and your connection with your partner, future partner, will be far, far better if you save yourself for the one that you give yourself unreservedly to. I love the fact that here in the, in the account, both Joseph and Mary are presented by Matthew as taking the high road. 
Matthew takes the high road because, hey, listen, he finds out his wife is pregnant, and this is an unlikely story of divine impregnation. Like, really? Like, that's a very easy story to disbelieve, right? Like, uh, no, but the angel appears and says, hey, trust me on this one. uh, Joseph then is like, well, like, what do I do? Right? I can't put her away privately because it would have been a shame for Mary to have begun to show in her pregnancy, both for Mary and for Joseph. Because if Joseph stays with her, the assumption is, hey, that's Joseph's baby. If Joseph, as the text says, puts her away privately, the assumption is, hey, that's not Joseph's baby. She's been unfaithful. Now, we don't know how old Mary was, but she could have been as young as 15 or 14 and probably not older than 18. Joseph could have been in his late teens, not probably older than his mid-twenties. And so, you know, this is a young couple. And in a culture, let me say this, in a first century culture that hugely valued age and wisdom and experience, Mary and Joseph's youthful piety is all the more striking that they would make godly, honorable, and righteous choices about their sexuality and about their relationships. And I want to appeal to all of my teenagers that are here, and even if you're not a teen, if you're a single in your 20s or 30s, I want to appeal to you to honor God in your whole person, including your sexual person. That's Matthew chapter 1. Come with me now to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, as we noted last week, One of the features of Matthew's gospel is Jesus' repeated positive interactions with outcasts. Oh, a leper? Jesus touches him. Oh, a tax collector? Jesus says, hey, come and be my disciple. Oh, a Roman centurion? Jesus affirms him in the strongest possible language. Like, Jesus is happy to freely and easily mingle with people that many of the religious leaders of his day would have been like, uh, I don't think so. We have that story there where Mary Magdalene is washing Jesus' feet with her hair and the onlookers are like, yeah, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't be letting her do that. But Jesus knew exactly what kind of a woman she was. He mingles freely and, and positively and, and happily with people that were, not, that were considered on the outside, on the fringes. Now, this is really, really cool because when Matthew introduces his gospel, guess who's there to announce the arrival of the king of the Jews? It's a bunch of Gentile philosophers. It's a bunch of, bunch of Gentile astronomers. Matthew's gospel forces his readers to identify not with the Jewish establishment, but with the Gentile wise men. Look at how he tells the story in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Notice that in the first three verses, the word king occurs three times. King, king, king. It occurs again also in verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. In three of these four instances, it's a reference to King Herod. Now, this is Herod the Great. This is not the Herod that will feature most prominently in the Gospels. This is Herod the Great. His son, Herod Antipas, is the primary Herod that will feature in the Gospels many years later. Jesus is, of course, very young here. But when Jesus is in his late 20s, early 30s, that Herod is not this Herod. Okay, that Herod is the son of this Herod. This is Herod the Great, and this guy was a scoundrel. Augustus famously said of Herod the Great, it would have been better to have been Herod's pig than his son. 
This guy killed whoever he wanted to kill. He was in a continual state of paranoia about somebody seeking to usurp the throne. And the reason that Herod the Great, like so many ancient kings, was in a continual state of paranoia about their own standing was because he had achieved it by illegitimate and uh, less than uh, upfront means. So he was always on the lookout for somebody that might be seeking to usurp because he's not really a Jew. His official title was king of the Jews, but he was in no sense the king of the Jews. He was simply what's called a client king or a vassal king that had been set up by Rome. Right, Rome would set these various puppet kings up in, in their, uh, the various areas of the vast Roman Empire. And in the case of Palestine... Herod was set up as the king of the Jews, but the Jews despised him. He wasn't even fully Jewish. They didn't like him at all. And so wise men from the east come, and they assume mistakenly that the Messiah will be found, the deliverer will be found in the palace of the king. So they go, hey, hey, where's, where's the Messiah, the deliverer? Where, where is he? And Herod's like, what do you mean? What, what, what do you mean? Well, 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 we've come from the east. We saw the star. Now, this is where things get absolutely amazing from my perspective. The Jewish establishment misses the Messiah's birth, but Gentile astronomers do not. Can somebody say amen to that? I mean, clearly Matthew was making a point. Not only does he have four women in the genealogy of Jesus, all of whom are Gentile. That's chapter 1. By the time we get to chapter 2... Who is it that shows up to worship? It says three times in chapter 2, we've come to worship, we've come to worship, we've come to worship. These guys know who Jesus is. And they seem to recognize in some significant sense that even though he's the king of the Jews, that king of the Jews is not an isolationist situation. It's not a parochial situation. That in some sense, he's the king of the world. And we mentioned that last week, that that's a major thesis in the gospel theme in the gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the rightful king of the world. So these wise men from the east, uh, that's that's an idiomatic first century way of saying non-Jews. Jesus, when speaking to the the people there, when the Roman centurion said, no, just speak and my servant will be healed, Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And people were astonished that Jesus would affirm a Roman centurion in in such an emphatic manner. And then Jesus said, is this surprising to you? Many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So this idea from the east and from the west is a way of saying not us, those people, foreigners, barbarians, isn't this great? They show up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which shows several things. Number one, they were wealthy. And number two, these were gifts that were traditionally offered to kings and gods. The Jewish establishment has completely missed the arrival of their own Messiah. And yet these wise men from the east show up with gifts suitable for a king and a god. Matthew is making a point, and it's a point not lost on Ellen White. Let me share with you a few statements from Ellen White on this very point. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism. Can the church say amen to that? God's light is shining everywhere. I preached a sermon all probably five months ago now on the book of Daniel. God is working with everyone, everywhere, even people like Nebuchadnezzar, even the wise astronomers from the east. The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of heathenism in their their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of of a divine teacher. That is a fascinating statement from the pen of Ellen White. In their own land? 
In their land, there were prophecies of a coming Messiah. Now, what kind of people give prophecies? What do we call those people that give prophecies? Prophets. There were prophets. We don't have these writings in Scripture. We know nothing about them except for this, that there were ancient and ancestral prophets, even in the East, that were anticipating a coming Messiah, a king not only of the Jews but of the world. It was necessary, she says, to journey by night in order to keep the star in view, but the travelers beguiled the hours by repeating traditional sayings and prophetic utterances concerning the one they sought. What an interesting thing. As they're traveling, they're repeating their own ancestral and traditional sayings. In other words, they probably don't have access to the Jewish scriptures such as we understand them. This is from their own culture, from their own context that is leading them to the true Messiah. At every pause for rest, they searched the prophecies, and the conviction deepened that they were divinely guided while they had the star before them as an outward sign. I love this. They also had the inward evidence of the Holy Spirit. Can the church say amen? Man, any person on earth can have the inward evidence of the Holy Spirit. A Buddhist can have it. A Hindu can have it. An atheist can have it. Anybody can have the inward evidence of the Holy Spirit. They themselves might not recognize it as the Holy Spirit, but God is working with everyone everywhere. The light of God. Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world, not just Jews, not just Christians, and not just Seventh-day Adventists. Hallelujah. Which was impressing their hearts and inspiring them with hope. The journey, though long, was a happy one to them. Of course, every journey to Jesus is a happy journey. Being of alien blood, Herod was hated by the people over whom he ruled. His only security was the favor of Rome. But this new prince had a higher claim. He was born to the kingdom. We'll come back to that in a moment. For hundreds of years, the scriptures had been translated into Greek. We talked about that last week in the intertestamental period. The Greek language, then widely spoken throughout the Roman Empire, the Jews were scattered everywhere, and their expectation of the Messiah's coming was, to some extent, shared by the Gentiles. Even among those whom the Jews styled heathen were men who had a better understanding of scriptures, scriptures prophecies concerning the Messiah than had the teachers in Israel. There were some who had hoped for his coming as a deliverer from sin. Philosophers endeavored to study into the mystery of the Hebrew economy, but the bigotry of the Jews hindered the spread of the light. What? The people of God hindered the spread of the good news of God? No, surely not. Intent on maintaining the separation between themselves and other nations, they were unwilling to impart the knowledge they still possessed concerning the sanctuary service. The true interpreter must come. Even among the heathen, Ellen White uses this phrase several times, even among the heathen, there were men through whom Christ was working to uplift people from their sin and degradation, but these men were despised and hated. Many of them suffered a violent death. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. I've read this quote three times since I've been here in pastoral ministry. You, I will never miss an opportunity to quote Desire of Ages, page 638. This is the third time. There'll probably be at least a hundred more probably before I go. Among the heathen, there are those who worship God ignorantly. Those to whom light is never brought by human instrument, yet they will not perish. Can somebody say amen? Though ignorant of the written law of God, not, not privileged to have what you and I take for granted. Oh, no, no. They have heard his voice speaking to them in nature. Well, that's just what the wise men had. They didn't have the prophecies of Scripture as such, but they saw a star, something in nature, something in the heavens. 
and, and, and as if moved by some unseen hand, they were drawn into the very place where Jesus, the coming Messiah, was. But it, but, but, but it wasn't some nebulous unseen hand. The unseen hand that guided them and brought them along was the hand of the Spirit. Have done things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as the children of God. This is the point that Matthew is making. The wise men from the East show up as the true children of God, but not to any class is Christ's love restricted. He identifies himself with every child of humanity. His followers are not to feel themselves detached from the perishing world around them. Oh, no, 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 no. These are our people. We are connected with what she calls the web of humanity. Now, where Jesus, where Matthew goes from this is to Jesus' flight from Egypt. We pick it up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord prepared, or pardon me, appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Even from chapter 2, we are already very much uh, presented with the sense that, that Jesus' whole life exists under the shadow of the cross. Chapter 2, man, babies are being slaughtered. Jesus is a refugee with a price on his head. This is not, again, silent night, ooh, where the angels come. This is not that. This is politically volatile, refugee, fleeing, new king. But it's, it, this is a whole big... It's a, it's a political piece of dynamite what's taking place here. And when, when Jesus, when, when, when Jesus is, is threatened to be killed, when he knows, when Herod is, is finally realizes that the wise men have, have not been totally up front with him because the angel appeared to them as well, Herod says, okay, slaughter all those people. This is the same Herod who five days before his own death had one of his sons killed. Five days before Herod's death. He was on his deathbed. He knew he was dying. And he's like, yeah, but before I die, kill my oldest son. This guy was a... He had his favorite wife strangled to death. He later regretted it because she was found out to be innocent of the crime of which he had accused her. But this is a guy who would kill anybody and everybody who got in his way. And so when he finds out that there's some king who has an actual attachment to actual Davidic lineage, his response is, kill them all. Kill them all. And so the angel appears and says, hey, you need to take the baby into Egypt and check this out. This is amazing. Even Jesus' flight to Egypt indicates Jesus' reception by the Gentiles and their nations. Can Matthew make the point any clearer? Four women, all Gentiles, mentioned in his genealogy. Three wise men from the east show up to announce the arrival of the king of the Jews. And when it comes time for Jesus to flee to safety from his own people, the king of the Jews, he flees to Egypt. Well, what does this sound like? This sounds like the Old Testament. We've heard this story before. We've seen this movie. And we'll deal with that in greater detail in chapter 4. This idea that Jesus is rehearsing and recapitulating the national history of Israel. Matthew is unmistakable. From the beginning, Jesus was a threat to the establishment. And he continues to be. Because... Well, for a variety of reasons, but the chiefest of which is, for our purposes, if Jesus really did raise literally and bodily from the dead, then what can anybody do to you? This is why you see the book of Acts. These guys are just charging into social and, and, and uh, dangerous situations, socially dangerous situations, because at the end of the day, what can somebody do? Just tuck you in for a nap. If Jesus has conquered death, 
powers and rulers and kingdoms have no real, uh, uh, they're, they're toothless lions. They have no real power. Oh, man, Jesus has been a threat to the establishment from the beginning. I love the way that Craig S. Keener puts it in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Magi seek one born king of the Jews. This may further underline the challenge to Herod, who was widely known to have achieved his rule by warfare and politics and not by birth. The the wise men say, we look for him who is born king of the Jews. And Herod's immediately like, what? Someone came into this role, someone came to, to think they can usurp my throne, and they came in by rightful means? He's nervous, deadly nervous. N.T. Wright in Matthew for Everyone says, Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. I know we do our pageants come December, but as, as, as far as the text of Scripture goes, get those thoughts out of your mind. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. That's the biblical story. It continues, and I love this. If he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us, he's going to have to be Emmanuel where the pain is. He can't just be Emmanuel in some generic sense. And isn't it fascinating that we are right now in the midst of the greatest refugee and immigrant crisis the world has ever seen? Let me tell you something. 1% of the Earth's population have been displaced from their native or ancestral homelands in the last decade. Let it settle in. 1%. One in every 100 people in the last 10 years have been displaced by war or other conflict from their native homelands. More than 70 million people immigrants right now. And you know what's amazing? The story of Jesus is a touchstone. It's a point of connectivity with people who have no home, people who have no security, people who are inherently vulnerable, and they can read the gospel and say, wait a minute, God was a refugee? God was an immigrant? God knows what it is to not know where the next meal is coming from or if it rains, where you're going to find shelter. Friends, that's the God of Scripture, not some aloof, divine monarch sitting on the throne of the universe, detached and distant from our problems and the vicissitudes of life. Jesus is presented to us from the outset as a God who comes and is with us in those moments of a potential humiliation, oh, the dubious nature of his birth, and potential vulnerability and, and, and fear when he's fleeing for his own life on, the, on the, the back of a donkey with his young mother and his young confused father. Go to Egypt. For people who don't know where their place is, who have been afraid, who, who, who worry about tomorrow, who are worried about finances, who have pain or cancer or disease or, or some other familial drama, Jesus knows that. He's not just God in some generic sense, friends. If the biblical story is true, it's the most beautiful, conceivable story. God is with us, not in just some beautiful, placid, halcyonic sense. God is with us in pain. Shadows of the cross. Fast forward all the way to Matthew chapter 27. Even in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, there are shadows of the cross. As I mentioned, as soon as Herod goes to destroy the infants. Jesus' life from this point forward is under the shadow of the cross. There is always that low cello in the back of the soundtrack of Jesus' life, that cello in low minor tones suggesting that danger is always on the horizon, that something is coming. Yes, there will be moments of of miracles. Yes, there will be the feeding of the 5,000. Yes, there will be the Mount of Transfiguration. There will be joyous strains and happy celebratory tambourines, but always in the background of the soundtrack of Jesus' Jesus' cinematic life is the low cello, a sense that that something yet 
comes. There's the dark shadow of the cross that looms over him. This is from Matthew's gospel, seven points of the shadows of the cross. Number one, Herod will eventually be followed by Pilate. But where, but where Herod attempted to kill Jesus, Pilate, as the representative of Caesar, will succeed. Number two, Gentile Pilate asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? How come it's always the case that in Matthew's gospel, that phrase, the king of the Jews, is coming from the mouth of Gentiles? The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. And Jesus responds, as we noted last week, it's as you say. It is as you say. Number three, one tried to kill, the other succeeded, as we mentioned. Like Joseph, who was warned in a dream, Pilate was warned by a dream that his wife had in the very moment, in the crucible of that moment where he was making a decision about the innocent life of one named Jesus of Nazareth. In that moment, a messenger rushed in, or maybe it was the wife herself, I don't recall right now, but rushes in and says, have nothing to do with this man. I had a terrible dream because of him. Oh, there's this, there's this reflection, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, a dream warns. In Matthew chapter 27, a dream warns. Three more points here, four more points here on the shadow of the cross. Like the wise men, the soldiers created the sign and put it above the head. King of the Jews. Again, it's always the Gentiles. In Matthew's gospel, it's always the Gentiles. It's not the religious establishment affirming and heralding their king. Next one, given the gift of a king's crown, just as, just as the wise men brought gifts fitting for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 was given the gift of a king, a crown. But this was a crown of thorns. And instead of a star in, in Matthew chapter 2 that illumined the path for the Gentile seekers, a great and deep darkness came over the land when Jesus was crucified. And who is it that repeats or says, affirms, heralds, publishes, truly this was the Son of God. It's none other than a Gentile who is a Roman, who is a soldier. From Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is living in the very shadow of the cross. This is the story that Matthew paints. Jesus' birth and flight to and from Egypt loudly announces, the new exodus has begun and the new Moses is here. If you pay attention to Matthew chapters 1 and 2, you'll notice that at each episode in the life of Jesus, Matthew inserts a biblical passage. He inserts Isaiah. He inserts Micah. He inserts Jeremiah. And Matthew is telling a very specific story. And the specific story that he's telling right here at the close of Matthew chapter 2 is that Jesus not only goes into Egypt where he flees for his life, he remains there for a time, a peaceful time. He is then called out of Egypt in fulfillment, astonishingly, Matthew says, of the prophecy of Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But I invite you to go back and read that prophecy. That's not a prophecy about Jesus, or at least it doesn't appear to be, that was about Israel. And yet Matthew, in a swoop of his New Testament hands, is saying that Jesus is fulfilling, reviewing, and even recapitulating the history of Israel. The new exodus has come. Jesus will chart a way through the wilderness. The new Moses, the new messenger, the new leader has come. We're only in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and we already have so much to digest. What are we going to do over the next 26 weeks? Beloved, as I said at the end of last week, I want to say it again this week. There is no one 
that I would rather follow than this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. I want to say with the wise men from the east, I want to say with Pilate when he asked the question, I want to say with the Roman centurion, centurion excuse me, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And I want to say that I understand something today that the wise men themselves apparently understood, that in being the king of the Jews, he was the king of something bigger, something grander. He was the king of the whole world. My question is, is he your king? Matthew does not write his gospel for informational purposes only. Matthew is clearly writing his gospel to bring the readers to the point of decision. And he's, he's done you a favor. He's crafted his gospel in such a way that you naturally identify, not with Herod and not with the religious establishment of Jesus' day, you naturally identify with the wise men. He puts you into, the, into a sympathy with the wise men, the wise men who came from the east, the wise men who were not part of the establishment, the wise men who were Gentiles, the wise men who brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The greatest gift that you can bring to a king is the gift of yourself. Jesus in his, Matthew in his gospel paints Jesus as, as someone who demands a decision. On whose side will you find yourself? Will you find yourself on Herod's side? Will you find yourself on Pilate's side? Or will you find yourself on the wise men's side? Will you find yourself on the side of those that recognize from afar there's something special about this man and I will bring him a gift fit for a king? Father in heaven, Jesus woos us to a decision. The gospel woos us to the point of deciding this way or that way. And Father, my prayer today is that we will receive Jesus, not just in some generic or general sense, oh, yeah, he's a great guy, yeah, he's my savior, whatever, but, Father, that we would receive Jesus as king, as the one that has rightful rulership over our lives, over our family, over our finances, over our food, over our computers, over our phones, over our words, over our texts. Father, may Jesus be enthroned not on a wooden cross of torture and terror, but may Jesus be enthroned, the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the throne of our hearts and on the throne of our families. Teach us what that means, Father. Teach this church what that means. Teach this pastor what that means. And in Jesus' name we pray. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. Have a great Saturday.